0: You're listening to The Live Drop. My guest is Jack Devine. His career at the CIA spanned from the late 60s to the early 90s, including the fall of President Allende in Chile in 1973, the Iran-Contra Fair in the mid-80s, the fight to push the Soviets out of Afghanistan in the late 80s. Devine would also go on to run the Counter Narcotics Center in the, in the 90s and helped oversee the capture of Pablo Escobar in 1993. In this interview, we talk about his initial impressions of Santiago in 1971, the difference between liberalism and communism and he clarifies the extent and limitations of u.s involvement in both the Pinochet's chase coup attempts he clears the air in his book spymaster's prism jack suggests we need a new set of moscow rules and what they might look like it's a wonderful discussion with an experienced spymaster whose knowledge of spy history brings vivid impression insights from the past all the way into the future he also clarifies why code phrases need not be improvised the revolution has begun begin transmission now yeah, one thing that really struck me is you were in a lot of very important kind of key places. What's interesting in your book is you um you not only provide an insider's view of this, but you kind of dispel some myths that people have had. For example, that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were actually, you know, trained Mujahideen by the CIA. And you talk about the uh Chilean Chilean coup attempt. 1970 and 1973 how we we weren't really involved with that i kind of want to start with you in 1970 when you first got to santiago and was that your first assignment
1: uh chile and and santiago was my first assignment i would say that i I led a very parochial life how i got into the cia remains a mystery to everybody (laughs) but i do think my dna matches. so i had you know in those days people didn't travel the way they did i was from a blue collar family you know We went with the Boy Scouts to Canada and Bermuda. A lot of my colleagues, when I went into the training, been all around the world, sons of missionaries, foreign diplomats, and so on. And uh, I didn't have that experience. So for me to go, I mean, traveling to Chile, Chile, for those who haven't been there, it's a 14, 15-hour flight. You know, it's down by the Antarctic, the tip. You know, you take a boat off of there and go to Antarctica. So it's, and in the North AF deserts. it was amazing. So to go into that world. Traveling at, at that time, I think we had four or five, five. We had five children. So loading on a plane, flying for 14 hours. The plane couldn't make it all the way. So we ended up in Paraguay. When Paraguay had an airport that literally was made of a tent and chickens were running around today, it's an airport. <laughs> but it was like totally out of you know, Philadelphia area, Southwest Philly, Wildwood, Ocean City, New Jersey, all all of a sudden I'm there I'm looking at the Andy Mountains, these Mountains, and you know, and then I look around in the country I'm in full of communists with red flags, That is what I saw on TV or saw in books. There was no media, there was no CNN, and all US media was sort of blocked out. So there were no newspapers. You had the Miami Herald for about a, a year, and then it disappeared. And they just couldn't get in. And one of the big problems was the newspaper. So it was a, a nerve shattering a life-changing event forever for me. And I said a lot of my friends took it to try. Now, before that, I had been in the agency for a couple of years because I'd gone through the orientation. I had gone through a year of training, several months of, of Spanish language. So I had been in there. And what's interesting, Mark, is I was on the task force in Washington. It was one of the – it was a secret operation back in those days. So you set up a backroom operation called the Chile Task Force. And I, I was a young man. And my job was to go in after hours, take everything, and convert it into a talking point memo for the, for the leadership. So I was basically taking information, read stuff from the deck. It was very exciting. And I was reading everything that was coming in and out. So the important thing is when I talk about children, it's a very controversial subject, remains a, a hot-button point for people. A lot of the historians and a lot of the teachers, unfortunately, you know, they don't want to talk to me. They want to read my books. No, they want to stick with the mythology. You know, so the reason I wrote the book, going to your really good point, I mean, in this, is I did teach history. I love history, and I like getting facts right. When you get in the CIA, you better live. You're living and dying by your facts. So I felt there was a great need to talk about experiences like like Chile, what you pointed out there were a series of interesting events in my life that became public because I got closer to covert action where there's the Ron Contra or the Hunt for Escobar or the uh, Ron Contra, as I said, or Rick Ames, all of those things became public. So I was able to meld that into a thematic book and get off my chest what I think the way you ought to do covert action and the way you ought to do this and do that, where many of my colleagues have run very exciting careers, about the handled agents and, and so on and back streets. But they can't talk about it. So I was blessed. And a lot of people don't want to write about it. I, didn't, I wasn't planning to write about it. It was an accident that I actually got to write. But I'm getting, I just can't stress enough. You know, I, I came from middle class. So I wasn't in poverty. Never had a Mr. A meal, and all those things. But uh, Sandlot Baseball, I noticed mean, it, was, it wasn't, we, we weren't in any of the, the elite institutions. And then suddenly be a little chilly. And it was the second most important thing, along with Vietnam, that America was trying to, to use muscle to change circumstances, so it was shocking.
0: But didn't uh, Richard Nixon say it was a red? We've, we've got ourselves a red sandwich down there.
1: Right? <laughs> <laughs> For the folks that are listening and not watching you, I mean that's a that's a scary. I hope you don't impersonate me?
0: No, no, not well. Well, you know, after an hour, or so I might have something to put together. You might shit.
1: have something to work with. You know, when you, you you get around to talking to the young people, they have you know preconceived notions, and you start talking about communism, it's like, why what, what, what are you talking about? But when I was a young man to their age or a young kid, communism was, that's what you talked about. It wasn't Trump and Biden. It was, you know, you got under your desk and the teachers were teaching anti-communism universally, the entire country. I don't want to say the small percent that sympathized with the communists, but they were irrelevant, and visible. The country was locked against it. And um, I joined with the missionary SEAL, <laughs> SEAL? Communism was a real threat to this country. And, you know, today we've we've walked away. So so Nixon and and Kissinger, but the whole world was of that mind. But they saw Cuba, and, you know, this was not too many years at the Bay of Pigs under Jack Kennedy. So it was very much until they had intelligence reporting from the communists saying they plan to use Chile and use the election process, turn it against us, to bring communism. So he was, they were, in fairness to history, the environment that isn't as outlandish as it sounds right now there's a lot of ways to stop it from being a sandwich one could argue about that but that it was a real threat and certainly in both democrat and Republicans mind you didn't have the division you have today sadly
0: you mentioned in your book that um i mean this involvement in a task force Chile that it was emboldened by our success in post-war Italy and influencing their elections could you just talk about that a little bit if you if
1: well, this is really important. I mean, who would think that Italy was almost going to become a communist country? I mean, today you right. go there and you go to the, to the Colosseum, you are go to the outdoor opera, I mean, you know, buying food, you listen to Italians in the street, they're saying whatever they want, right? right? But you have the second largest, the largest communist party outside of the Soviet Union, and Chile had the second largest. Remember, people forget this. I love history. One of the big things today, 2021, I really feel if we were testing people, their historic IQ is so much lower than it was previous decade. And I'm talking everybody's thumbed out on on history. Oh, yeah. But when World War II ended, you have to remember, Russia was our ally. 11 million Russians died fighting against the Nazis, right? So it was, a, oh, well, now maybe we're going to have a good relationship with them. But there was an illogical difference. Their vision of the world was different than us. And then they took over Eastern Europe. And there was an election in which the communists almost won in Italy in 1948. Mm-hmm. And we absolutely did go in. I don't have any compunctions about discussing it. Tell me about it. I never heard about I think it. I it was in first or second grade. So I, I, my hands are clean. But I'm, the, in retrospect, how they did it then was replicated uh, even till today, other than you use. High tech instead of science with down with communism. You use the internet as the Russians used in this, uh, in this country. Coming back to the Chile scenario, I mean, you had, uh, were they trying to come through the ballot box? And in Allende, Allende wasn't elected as a single person. He was part of a coalition. And the, the the largest group in the coalition, the Communist Party, and his Socialist Party wasn't the Socialist Party of Europe. So the communists were not far-fetched in thinking, hey, we can manipulate this guy. But they were a key player and had to be had to be dealt with.
0: I went to um, Chile in, in 2016. I did a, a movie down there, and I played a, like a disgruntled Homeland Security agent or something, HSI agent down there or something. But one of the things that was interesting is uh, every Saturday there was a demonstration at the time, and there was either usually students marching in the streets they they either wanted tuition assistance or there were some problems with um their health care but it seemed to be like a normal uh part of their political process was like loud demonstrations in the streets it's interesting Um, your book you point out the 800 for the pots and pans i think they were still using pots and pans when i was there but um and then and then it would always end with like uh, You know, this kind of smell of CS gas, just sort of, of tear gas, just sort of wafting down along the Andes near that.
1: I've been caught. I've, I've been caught. I was caught in it there in tear gas. But
0: you were. Let me, there's a
1: couple of things about Chile just for the setting of people that don't follow. Sure. I mean, Chile had a democracy of 150 years. If you look mm-hmm. at Latin America in the 60s, it's a coup here and a coup there all through the history. Right. But Chile. Had the I think the longest running democracy I think Colombia is somewhere nearby and Mexico has a unique unique form of they had single party for a long time but they had elections so they had a long history and therefore public expression freedom of the press you know they had a long history they were much more similar and they have what's interesting you had the British influence and the American influence uh, the German influence. The navy was the navy, for example, was uh, was British. The Air force was American. The army, which no one understood, was German, right? And right. and the police were probably more of a Spanish, Latin origin, right? But the very first meal that I ate. I ate with another officer and his wife. And I got to tell you, for me, a big deal was going out to Howard Johnson's with my kids and having breakfast. That was what I go for. That was my mm-hmm. lifestyle. I think the chili and the dollar is very right? We're going out for a uh, steak al pobre. So that's a steak with an egg on it. And they're bringing the wine, al chambre, which is a red bottle of wine. And I'm say, what is this? I don't live this way, but isn't this great? But I walked outside the door and there was... 15, 20,000 communists. I mean, all communists, red flags going, but they were real controlled. You could see that the party was this, this wasn't going to get off the main track, which look at what happened in our country and riots. These are highly controlled events. I'm just a little surprised. And I know they did have a wage issue. And maybe it was 2016 when that broke up and it was some messy. Incident, but they have a history of public, and that's why this was a big break. Allende was breaking with that tradition, and so did Pinochet dramatically, right? So that's the the sadness. The one thing about your experience landing there, and it's interesting, I'm really heartened by what you saw. All that modern, you have to one that goes, you have to realize that there was just the center city. Every all those modern buildings did not exist during the Allende period when I was there. Nothing was there. There was that was mountain hills, people went skiing out there. That core city. And it looked like not just Eastern Europe, it looked like Eastern Europe in 1930. It mm-hmm. had a charm about it. I mean, you know, and you know, you go down in the basement, there are guys playing cacho, and it was very European and didn't have the, the same pace as American life. And it had a tremendous charm.
0: Oh, I loved it there.
1: And so does our country. But, you know, the more you modernize it,
0: the Moneta Plaza is in front of the...
1: well, they remodeled it after the Chilean Armed Forces. <laughs>
0: Oh, right. It's still open. I mean, they're guarding it. I was in the embassy,
1: and we had intelligence that told them. We didn't know whether they could shoot or didn't shoot. I, mean, I had no idea whether the Air Force was any good. They were trained by Americans, I guess. And so they flew plot lines. But they released them on the other side of what was the Mapocho River. So they released them a couple miles away, and they flew over the embassy. I mean, they and we were on the floor. That was, and he said, wow. And they put them through the window, so I learned later that they were actually practicing, and no one saw. It. We did not know about the coup. I and mean, read, when right. you read Walk and certainly good hunting the first book. You know, there's a lot more about this. But my wife got the first intelligence report. I didn't, and she wasn't. A, she wasn't a declared spy. She's always been a spy. She was born a spy. But on the hill, they had windows carved, you know, with chalk, so that they would practice hitting. And we had no idea that they were Oh there. wow! We thought them. there was going to be an election. Routinely, and we were going to win that election because his popularity was had been dropping like a rock. And we thought we were on the road to that. And there was a big surprise. Yeah. There was trouble. We knew there was trouble in the air, but we did not. This is one of those things. The CIA did not work with the builder in planning the coup that overthrew Allende. And people get confused with the half bait. I almost used something else, half bait effort in 71 where there were Kissinger and Nixon said, give it a try, even though the CIA said it's not going to work. But the actual coup, we had no dealings with the military. And mm-hmm. I think that's a great misunderstanding. And I don't think we, speaking of misunderstanding, in our analysis, I don't think we understood the military very well because they were not part of the power structure up until the coup. And so, or shortly year or two before. So we really didn't have good stories. We weren't developing people in the military because it was a democratic country. What are they going to tell right. So it was working with the political parties. So I think we missed it because we didn't understand that the Chilean army was really an arch-conservative institution. My own experience was with the Chilean navy, and they were very – they speak fluent English like a Brit, and they they had mannerisms. like. That. But if you, you hung out with the military, it's a different – the army was quite different. Wasn't the
0: navy centered in Valparaiso?
1: That's where the coup actually started. And if you go back, and one thing I want to tell the readers, you know, you're not going to be arrested, and I'm not going to be arrested for divulging secrets here today. But you have to work hard to go find it. But what I'm telling you, I'm very relaxed about telling you because it was covered in a 1973 congressional investigation. Mm -hmm. They investigated the whole thing. And when I was in my 20s and I read it, I was outraged that anyone would even write about what I did. This is crazy. What are we doing? So I was put off by the report. But years later, I went back with more objectivity and experience, and they did a very good job. It's a very, from my experience, and I was there. I was in the embassy. I was in Washington when it started, when it finished. And I thought the Congress did a really first-class investigation, and I think the facts uh, you know, the facts, the facts are there and for those who, who want to look at it.
0: I have wonder if that was more Soviets were behind echoing that it, that CIA was responsible for the seventy three.
1: Well, that would have been style. I mean, that would have been in a good Cold War format, and you know, it's in my hat for for it. But they had a lot of help at home. I mean,
0: um, oh right,
1: there was a very we were changing as a society, and there was a lot of sensitivity about it. The mm-hmm. country was becoming politicized. very politicized in the seventies.
0: I just worked on a documentary film about a guy who was an American, who was a singer, songwriter, actor in the 50s and he had a hit record in Argentina and he moved down there. He saw a lot of the, you know, poverty and political unrest and was supporting the the socialists, supporting the socialists and
1: he probably played the guitar at one of the parties I had for the nuns.
0: His name was Dean Dean Reed. Ah uh, no, okay,
1: but let me tell you, well, what he saw back then There were a group of uh, the order. I think it was the Mercy Order of Nuns had a school right around the corner from where I lived. So there were very few English-speaking people because they all left. So the kids heard these nuns, and you know, so we thought, well, the nuns are here all by themselves. Why don't we have a party for the nuns? So we brought them in good wine. But I found this guy walking down the street playing the guitar. He's Argentine. He said, "Look, I'm having a party. Why don't you come in and play for the nuns tomorrow night?" So he came in. I never saw him again, but I gave him my business card. I didn't think about it. A couple of years later, uh, somebody came into my office and gave me the card and said, uh, this guy sent a note, you saved my life. This card saved my life. And what it turned out is uh, Chilean military arrested him because he was an Argentine, like your friend, leftward leading, right? He was he was out in that big stadium where they were bumping people off, right? And he, he pulled out the card and said, I'm a friend of the American embassy. On the plane, leaving, getting on the plane, there must have been an American consular officer there And he handed the card and said, if you ever see this guy, (laughs) tell him the best thing I ever do is play guitar for the nuns and get this card. I never know I didn't know what would happen with him, but it was the reason I tell it and the reason it's interesting about your friend, that's the environment. It was um, it was a highly radicalized environment.
0: Because Dean Reed apparently he was I mean, first of all, he I think he wrote a letter in protest to President Kennedy for offshore nuclear testing off the coast of Chile. Initially, and then he was famous for wash washing the American flag in front of the U.S. Embassy in Santiago. But that was in 1970.
1: I think it was. Well, I would go down and punch them out, but that's okay. Back then, <laughs> have you heard of it? Have
0: you heard? <laughs> Don't read. That? I'm
1: looking for him. Tell him I'm yeah. looking for him. If you watched it
0: his- well, you got to watch this documentary. He's, he's he ended up moving to?
1: Let me put this. I want to look at his file. I want to see if he was tied oh, I- to the communist kind of party. That's something. I, they-
0: I they did be- look at his. This is a great operation.
1: If you want enter, if you want entertainment.
0: No, I so, did look at his file. The, I did look the, at his file. I mean, the State Department sold it. You didn't look at
1: the file. You I, can, look I the never file. looked at I didn't look, I didn't look at, at your files, file.
0: files, though. I didn't look at any Good of your luck.
1: Files. Good luck. <laughs> the agency has pulled out a couple pieces of paper for entertainment to show me. But I talk about cat operations in book. And, and uh-huh. you know, the Washington you know, of the flying side of the United States right in front of the NBA, It sounds like a Russian operation because... When I first walked in, it's very similar to what we did. So I walked into the embassy, new guy, and uh, I said, you know, I live in this neighborhood, nothing but cats all over the place, cats all over the place. They all start laughing. I said, well, what's so funny? He said, well, let's tell you about our great aunt. I said, well, tell me about your great aunt. They said, well, we put an ad in the newspaper. If you have a cat, <laughs> go take it to the Russian embassy, and they'll give you a $2, right? So, what I did every cup of tea. They took a cat, went to the door, locked in the door. The Russian shut it in their face. They threw the crap in the ground and stuff so went on. And I said, I just sat there as a young person. Are you nuts? I mean, this is serious business, Espionage, you know. Cat operations, this isn't what it's about. You have to do serious stuff. All I'm saying is in the Cold War, and even to today, I submit that people get tempted to do things that's part agitation and you think it's cool, but it has no bearing on reality. And I'm not saying Dean isn't or isn't, but it's the kind of thing that the Russian embassy could really work up. And I never heard of that happening. I don't know what year he did it. And I think we would have heard it, but it would not have been well received in 1970, 73.
0: Yeah, I guess he was a friend of Victor Hara. He was a, kind of like the Bob Dylan down there of, of Chilean songwriters.
1: Well, you know, and, and that was a, the, the writers and all, you are know, often liberal. And the problem is people get confused between liberal and communist, right? This is a totally different thing. So you grab people off the street, you think, look, I'm in a cafe, I'm singing, I'm doing some protest song in America. The greatest thing that the experience I had in terms of appreciating, I left Chile after Pinochet was there. with a repressive uh, government, as repressive as I've seen in my career. So I land in Miami, The, the taxi cab driver starts tearing Nixon apart and I don't I'm nonpartisan because it's part of my drill, but I started laughing because what where in the world can you start attacking the president of the United States with a stranger driving a cab and been in Shay's government, that cab would have been stopped in the corner, and it would never see you again. You'd be joined the DeSaPetecibo. Right. So we have a rich tradition where, yeah, sure you're gonna play the guitar. But if you go to the wrong part of the world and you start singing process songs, you better make sure you know you know that neighbor real well where the exit doors are. Yeah. So I think it was a liberal in other words, people did dissent, yeah. demonstrations. They were not expecting the iron hand. So a lot of folks were caught up in the middle of the night. There were a couple of Americans that pulled in. I'm not sure what they did wrong like, to this day. I, I didn't see anything in there, but they were on a list of being, you know, leftward leaning and they they were executed.
0: Some Americans were. I didn't know that.
1: Guy in the concert was a friend of mine. He had to go to the stadium looking. And that's an outrage. I mean, it's an outrage to kill anybody just because they play the guitar. But even how bad they play the guitar, they still have the outrage, right? Yeah. But they, you know, you don't kill. It's outrageous. So this became a big story. In fact, Jack Lennon played in the movie, Missing. The, the problem with the movie is, indeed, they were seized and executed, uh, sadly, and in they denied it to the American Embassy, but it was the American consulate that actually found the body, the bodies and notified the families and so on. But the accusation that somehow the CIA was involved is totally erroneous, erroneous and I said, if you go to the benchmark, find in the United States Congress, you're going to find that that is not that is not supported in any document, any serious document, there's no It's deeply sad story. And then, uh, nobody in that embassy that I was involved in would ever dream of, being you know, part of something like that.
0: Yeah. But they, they do take credit for the cat operation though.
1: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, <it's, laughs> but Mark, the point is what in the book I go to, how do you do real stuff? Right. Right. When do you yeah. start doing this and you don't need people can't take action. Now this is harmless, so to speak, unless you're mm-hmm. sensitive to cats, but you know, when you, covert action can't be just, you can't do things and without thinking about the consequences. And I spell out, what are those rules? You know, you have to have a national security interest, a real interest in, 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 in the state. You have to try it, everything else. You have to have proportionality. You can't kill 100,000 people, the same one. You have to minimize the bloodshed. And then I would add some of my own. You better have bipartisan support in the kill. Fund it amply. Do not dabble in this action stuff. And this is dabbling. This is this is child's. Why don't you do something constructive? And uh, you need to have fighters on the ground. So when you look at Iraq today, and you look at it, it not only applies to covert action, it applies to kinetic military action as well. It actually flies under the flag of the theologians of the 14th century, just war theory, right? It goes back even further. And the point is, you have to have fighters on the ground. There has to be a commonality of interest. And I don't mean to get you know away from a more lighthearted thing here. But I take this stuff seriously in the first book, and it continues in this one, although here I go into the espionage side, is about don't dabble in this stuff. Don't have the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> don't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you started with Italy, but then they did Guatemala and, and uh, Iran, and there was this hubris that developed but they were successful right yeah and bay of pigs didn't have any of the things that i just told you about i mean it was a bad a terribly planned and executed
0: operation yeah so you're talking about covert action as an escalation not necessarily just another piece on the board that you can play right you know whenever something else isn't working it's funny i just saw james the new james bond film last night talk about escalation i mean in a popular mind you know, espionage is so conflated with you know covert action and shoot shoot 'em up it and is. stuff like that that it's it's really hard for someone to separate. I, I
1: met I met the uh, Sean Connery and well, there's two experiences again if you want. Oh yeah, I always was annoyed by the fact that we you know the is James Bond and Ian Fleming and. So, but then in the middle of my life, I began to have a deeper deep appreciation, and I'll explain that in a second. So, we were in the Rio Cafe in London with my wife and the head of the British service and his wife. So, he's a, an accomplished espionage guy. So, Sean Connery comes in, and all the women take a deep breath. Now, this may be a sexist comment; maybe some of the men did too. So okay, but there's you know, so both wives, instead of being cool, now she's not around, so she can't hear me. Right? And says, "Go over there and tell them to come." I said, I'm not going to bother this guy. He's probably bothered all the time. Now, here's the big flaw. The British head of the service, I won't name him because I'll embarrass myself, but I don't want to embarrass him. Mm-hmm. With arrogance, we point, we're we the real stuff, right? And they broke out laughing, hysterical. Like, you're not the real James Bond. There he is over there. So <laughs> years later in the Bahamas, Sean Connery's in the audience was talking about the first book and uh, – I told the story. Now he didn't laugh. He wasn't he didn't think that was so funny. So, but afterwards we had a good a good chat. But things that one thing that people don't know about him, he's, he's an anti-market monarchist. In other words, when you see him in the movie, it's all about the crown and the queen. He's he's a Scotchman and he was I mean, he makes a big issue out of it. But then I stood back and I said, wait a minute, see what you look like? See your style? Look at his. Don't you want the world to think that you're omnipotent and look like him and everything else? So, after after I thought about it, I said, "What the hell? Let the world let the world think I am uh, Sean Connery or uh, Daniel Craig. Why not? It helps this. Uh, we couldn't have bought that publicity. <laughs> it wasn't there. And the poor Russians never got that. No one played a nice <laughs> a nice Russian in any of the Western movies. So, and and, and the other thing was Stallone was uh, Stallone probably did more for my Afghan program than anybody else. He did what was it? Rambo three. Of. Leaning out of a helicopter. <laughs> and they made and the Russians. And it was like, wow, what am I doing, you know, putting up these signs? Russia's, Russia's out of Afghanistan. Let Stallone take care of it. So I have a, a humorous, but in this humor, there's some seriousness about it. You know, yeah. And if you look at what was James Bond? Defending the crown, doing the best job he could, feeding off evil. I mean, you know, sure, I'll take that. Take it and run. Why be so... Arrogant to think that you're doing real and he's, he's, he's studying magic. Now, the other thing, um, Jason Bourne movies, when we watch the first, we say, I know we have all that capability, but we don't have it integrated. The beauty of it, it's integrated in the movie. But if you go to Jason Bourne three, by the time you get to three, Jason Bourne one is accurate. Right. In other words, Hollywood sometimes you have to be, I mean, you have to be selective. Well, I'm not so sure today, but let me stop a few years ago. Hollywood sometimes is attuned to trends and the the people working like myself and sometimes you're you know you're trying to get trends but often it comes from the artistic world on the outside
0: yeah it's interesting i've read an article about how movies and films about intelligence process actually has something to do with your overall identity and effectiveness i mean if there were like an intelligence cycle of your existence or your role or your effectiveness you would have to include films in the way that you're represented because it does have have an impact
1: there was a point I was going to make when it comes to this. They have America's CIA people killing without discrimination and murdering. Now, that isn't true. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the one thing people don't understand. It's kind of boring. It's a terrible, boring movie. My movie of Charlie Wilson's War would be a lot more boring than Charlie's because of his was imagination, fact based. But right. coming back to the, to the core point, the movies, the movies are an insightful way sometimes an insightful way to look at the world. There was one about the U.S. and Russia working against Iraq together. And, but it was at a time when you could see there's rapprochement reproach on. That stopped with Putin. It's a, a rocky road. And my book is about, it's by me, it's about pay attention to Russia. I have a bone to pick with the world, right? Yeah. Why not China? China's the number one to everybody, right? President of the United States, CIA now has a new mission center. It is true. China is the most potential, you know, military, economic. But here we are announcing they're all in, right? It's like there's nothing else. All of a sudden it's China. But the truth of the matter is if you look at the Chinese and you say, well, what are they doing against the United States? I mean, what are they doing inside the United States? And you start looking at what the Russians did in 16, what they continue to do, what they did in Ukraine, and we're challenging us. The Russian intelligence part is really much more aggressive. The Chinese are Johnny come lately to human spying, for example. So when you say, all in on China, you're missing, you know, with climate or whatever, you're missing other influences and stability issues around the world. It's all in. Bureaucrat, bureaucrats insist that you've got to go from Russia to all in on terrorism, all in on Iraq and an Afghanistan war, $17 trillion later. I mean, it's three to six foot that, but if you put the whole pile together of how much it really costs. And you think to yourself, why can't we find balance in life? And maybe it's because we need clarity or something with American people. I'm cautionary. I think they should be doing and creating a center. I wouldn't announce it to the world. I wouldn't be yelling across the street. I'm going to punch your eyes out.
0: I just don't understand the the center thing, but don't they already have a Far East division or whatever you guys call it? Or a-
1: when I grew up, they had very structured stuff. I was, oh, that's a bad idea. When you have a crisis, we built tests. Okay. Actually, You bring in people from all around the world that have a specialty that fits into it. When I ran the Afghan program, we had analysts from Russia and from uh, Middle East. I had lot of logistics, bankers. I mean, you, you bring it in tests. And when I did counter-narcotics, you brought in scientists. So you build these things for the duration of the, the test. You build it. But there was a reorganization, which I am uh, I was opposed to at the time. I was opposed to the one. I'm on record in the Washington Post. I'm the only one. And I couldn't figure out why they called me. They had five directors, five senior people saying that reorganization in 2004 was great. And I said, it's a terrible idea. The only reason they can only find me because I was, sometimes they just move chairs on the ship's desk and they don't change anything. But they don't realize in moving the chairs, they do some damage to the floors. or, or, or So this all in on China again, I think you have to robust. So they have they created a different structure. It's going to bore the hell out of your audience, so we won't go into it.
0: Oh no. But they, they love have stuff had, like this. They had yeah.
1: Iran, they had Iran and North Korea. They're doing away with those two missions. And now going to have China. Now, wait a minute. What about Iran? Really? What was the big problem in the Middle East? It's Shia, Sunni, Iran. What you think that's stable? So okay, well, now we're not going to put you down over here. You're going to go back into the Middle East and North Korea. Yeah, you're developing longer-range missiles, got but you're going over here. But now China, it's all in. It's like, now everyone's going to speak Chinese. We're all going to, And you've got people running around the Middle East doing tactical targeting, and now we're all going to be Chinese. It's, I get a shift, but give me the big strategy someday.
0: It seems like a, well, check me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a guiding strategy was you know George Kennan's letter, which was the policy of containing the Russians. I mean, even back then, like you say, Putin is playing a bad hand very well, and we kind of knew that if we could contain them, they wouldn't they wouldn't take more resources, and that their system couldn't really support itself like that. Um, I, I guess I guess my question is uh, my question is what is that? What is our overall strategy at this point towards toward the Russians?
1: One of the things in my career in the agency, I wanted to find where's the real decision, where, where's, where's the action, where's the real strategy, right? So, you know, you, you then, actually the generation before we had a, a large part of activities were in the strategic intelligence, longer ago. But in the 70s going forward, it became tactical because we as consumers in America, everywhere, we want the news immediate. You know, mm. what happened to TV? The thoughtful, no, no, this is what happened. You get a three-minute sound bite, another three minutes. Where's someone sitting back and talking about Lebanon today? I mean, you just get the, there's a fight and people dying. You don't get the historical content. You don't get, they're so the intelligence communities are not immune to what's happening on the outside, nor should they be. But this whole world of tactical information, you can become a tactician. And when I found, and this is true in life and everywhere, I deal with a lot of big companies in my, job in the private sector intelligence world. It's not like they've got a handle on it either. But well, I kept going up and you keep waiting to find it. Hell, I'm up here now. Where's where's my strategy, right? Because it's hard to get around it. And I had a lot of people come to me, fine offices, smarter than me, ran a test or better in languages or whatever. But so many of them, Jack, lay off the strategic stuff. Just tell me what you want. I will do it and I will do it really well. And they would. And I needed them. There's a lot of people that are bright but aren't wired and not interested in, and there's an impatience out there. So I'm talking about the intelligence world, but I'm also talking about the media and education, and we're missing, and maybe we're not cultivating strategic thinking. And constantly, you don't even realize you're not in strategic thing. Where are the Kennans in this world? I read one on the Federal Reserve today. Trust me, don't do what I'm doing in the finance world. Although well, I'm kind of happy what I've done. But there's a guy who has a sending voice writing from inside the Fed, you know, that sort of, hey, you guys are off base. Whether he's right or wrong doesn't matter to me. What does matter is that you got somebody inside, like George Kennan, who wrote and saying, listen, you gotta, we got to get a handle on this. And it's powerful. And people... It's interesting. I say this all the time. You know, General MacArthur, when he left, he said, old soldiers never die. You know, They fade away. So old spies, you know, never die. They fade away unless they get a pen. And if they have a the pen, they can stay in the game forever. And my point
0: is. And if they got a Zoom and they got a Zoom camera that works. Who
1: has a pen anymore? Right. I mean, but well, you have to be able to use the Zoom. In other words, and be willing and to say something on the Zoom. If you don't have anything to say. Although I must add, I'm, I'm rowing competitively at lifeguard boats, right? You would laugh at that.
0: Are you rowing are you, right now? Oh, yeah. I,
1: I, I'm talking, come on out. You should come row with me. We, I'd we love to. we about 3.9 miles, and, but they're, they're surf boats. These are not these little shells. These are 300-pound boats with waves and all this stuff. But So every once in a while on LinkedIn, I put the photo, and I'm shameless. I'll put a cover of the book there, right? right. I'll get 1,200 hits of watching Jack Devine sitting in a boat. You have to laugh. I mean, there are people that have a lot of time, to, time on their hands to look at that. My point is the power of standing up and saying your uh, saying what you had in mind. There was a much higher tolerance among my predecessors. I really do think there was the best and brightest, but it's, it's also their integrity, the way they stood up for things and fought about ideas. I found over the years this less willingness, fear, you can have people that will take a bullet. They literally will go over the fence. But they won't take a bureaucratic bullet. They're like, oh, no, the IG, i going to this and that. I think it's missing everywhere. So when I see this, we need people to, what, what are we doing? Where were? Where was everybody on Afghanistan and Iraq? Where were you? I'm not talking about you, Mark. I mean, I'm on record, all right? And there's a Wall Street Journal 2010 says, you know, CIA solution, Jack Devine. This is not going to work no matter how valiant, how hard we work, and how good our intentions It's not going to work. You need to do covert and get out, and get that footprint out. And I know a couple of fairly significant people, intelligence, kept that by them, but never changed it. So I sent that out when the thing started to go south recently. 11-year-old op-ed, I got 6,000 in. My point is, standing up on these issues, it's hard to come by. And, you know, the Brits actually do a great job debating. When I mean, you go through school, you come out a good debate. And the, the Brits are really good on their feet. You can say what you like, but I think they punch above their weight. And part of it is they know how to, you know, they're trained to think in certain ways to, to get strategic issues. Now they made mistakes clear. Tony Blair must have skipped, lost the grade there because he got sucked into the Iraq thing, but and he's a smart guy. I don't mean to be facetious here. So it's a serious point though, Mark. It really is standing up and being counted. And I, to those that are aspiring to be leaders, you're going to go further by standing up. And I stood up. When I stood up, they humored me. They said, oh, "Jack, there he is again." But it, I benefited from it. But I had also leaders that tolerated, didn't ha- weren't so insecure that if you it, you were a big problem
0: case. You really have to look now. There's just this huge quantity of information out there that can you can use to support your opinions. I mean, some you can see how that is also weighed into it, like okay, this is your opinion, but where where is it coming from, and what, what is it based on?
1: Well, there's two things on that embedded in that profound question. Uh, one is in the intelligence business. You know, you don't want to get into all. So far, we need to use technical to the max. Absolutely, we have depreciated human. Now we had the Mueller report, and now we have Havana Syndrome. Why did we go through this uh, collusion, no collusion? This that? if we had a source, that's what we get paid to do inside the Russian. And we've had them over the years. Let me tell you what really happened. Well, why did we have to go through this galopi dance? Today, we have a very complicated thing on the Havana syndrome, and we're going to spend money and this and the other. We spent a lot of money on sorting out the Russia thing, which leads me to believe we didn't have the right kind of sources. Maybe we had someone who's good on nuclear, but we didn't have where you needed it. In Havana syndrome today, I'm making a pitch for human sources and the value, and this is true in the private sector. Have all the opinions you want. There's no shortage of it online. Back it up with some facts, some human reporting. You know, what do you? The other thing is, we have conventional wisdom. You say it, I say it, repeat the same thing. Next thing, it's it's fact. You know, going back to what they used to do in high school and college, primary sources. What is this based on? Mm-hmm. Why why are you saying that? What, what what we don't have patience or time, and we get mad at each other now because someone challenges you.
0: Yeah, we take we take our opinions personally.
1: We used to have fun having different opinions. I mean, really, we used to right. have fun in the Brits. I'm telling you, to trained to have. Now it's you got to be all in, and it's like crazy.
0: Yeah, it's going to be hard. Look
1: at Jefferson and Adams, Hamilton. You go back to the how we got the group of people running this country out of seven million <laughs> citizens, the quality of thinking, discourse, arguments, and they had fun. <laughs> they might, they might have liked each other, but truth comes from that interaction, not by sitting great, right, looking at your belly button, having great thoughts on your own. So. I don't know. The way the Congress, I'm picking on everybody today. I mean, the, the Congress, when I used to brief things, the Republican Democrats, I couldn't tell on the Afghan program who was, I mean, I know, But today, you got to be one side or the other. It's like, wow, can't we discuss the issue here? Forget forget you're, you're, you're trying to raise money or whatever for your election. I mean, I, I think we're in a terrible place. Uh, I like writing books. I, I do. And uh, partly because and I'm delighted to be on your show. Why? I'm trying to get something off my chest here.
0: Yeah, you definitely are. And I'm appreciating it. You talked about that we need to have some new Moscow Moscow rules. I'm a little confused because I, I always thought Moscow rules were, you know, if you think something's wrong, something's wrong, or everyone is under operational control. But you, you seem to refer to some kind of like rules of engagement.
1: If you ask CIA people, of, let's say starting with the generation behind me, even, excuse me, just ask anybody that worked in CIA, Moscow rules. Right. They're likely to jump that. Look, you don't wear a Mets hat and Nike sneakers when you're making a dead drop, and uh, you know right. you don't sing uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. In other words, I'm demeaning it, and I don't mean to. It means if you're going to make a clandestine media in Russia, what do you have to be alert for? How do you have to do this? Right? That's kind of cool, right? Yeah, but there was a, a set of rules, and you can't find them. There was, you can find even the Moscow rules that I just talked about. I know one fellow that's actually cataloged them and I would give him credit. He might not want me to, so I won't mention his name. There was a, when the Cold War was running, people don't understand when they look at 2016, it wasn't about the Russians collecting intelligence and using cyber in mean, every country you know, without exception is using to the maximum their capability to collect. The insulting, outrageous thing, and the one that I thought, they couldn't be doing this. How could they be doing this? It makes no sense. And why was I doubting it? Because I fought them through the Cold War. They used it internally to mess around in our political process. And no one seemed to be articulating that and why that was so It wasn't the DNC and it wasn't Trump. It was they were messing around. So what were the Moscow rules? How does that relate to them? We never counterfeited rubles. And to the best of my knowledge, the communists never uh, copied our dollar. Uh, mm-hmm. So why? We would destroy the world's economy. So we had an understanding. You know, there's not many CIA people who look at the movie, we get bumped up by the Russians and we bump them up. Very little violence. Now, there might have been one or two exceptions, <laughs> going back to like cats and dogs doing silly, silly things. But the, there was an understanding that we were going to play by certain General Marsburg, Marsburg rules. But one of them was we weren't going to mess around in each other's political process. Now, if you look at the Cold War, no one gets stands back after Stalin. But after Stalin, if you start looking, get somebody from CIA to tell you that we meddled in the political process after Stalin. What was that big operation? Be real hard, right? Because we didn't. Now. There are a couple. There was like an incident in 1980s, but by and large, the Russians did not meddle. They had the communists for a while in the but they weren't trying to have riots in the United States and molding opinion. That was part of it. So what I'm saying is that rule that go head to head ideological war, Russians and and Americans, Soviets and, and Americans. We didn't meddle inside, so that was the shocking aspect of 2016, and they're still doing it. And, and that's why I come back to the beginning, all in on China. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 got it. But there's a lot going on in the world, and there's a lot going on beyond Russia. Cyber warfare is a subject. Now, here, right to your point, there are no rules in cyber warfare. In other words, right. there are no Moscow rules. Mm. When we had nuclear weapons, we could count their weapons, and we could sit down and say, we'll have 100, and you'll have 75, and we'll have the, you know, you could negotiate there are no rules. So you now have an environment of mixing it up in each other's countries, not around the world. You're going to do that too, but in each other's countries, and there are no rules. Now, we keep saying we're going to respond in kind. What does that mean? You're going to respond in kind? Are we going to interfere in their election? Are they going to stop? Now, you can't have a conference. You know, <laughs> There's going to be a conference. At least you 70 countries. Is it 70 or 40? I think it's 40, are meeting To discuss cyber, well, we're not inviting the Russians, right? They're not part of the problem, right? They're not. What are you going to talk about? You're not going to have a conference. Are you going to admit to me that you're in mine and I'm in your? No. So you've got. Well, we won't. We won't take down anybody's uh, grid system. These are things that are properly negotiated in private, within between intelligence services. And my hope is that someday, maybe they're doing it. Maybe they're trying. I see no visible signs of success. That. We need rules. We're going to really start messing around in each other's political process, and you'll end up. You know what happens if they meddle in the twenty twenty two? I'm thinking they might. We're doing so well undermining ourselves. If I were sitting in the room, it's like, hey, look, why are we doing covert acting?
0: Let's just buy tickets and watch. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's,
1: let's not get caught now. We, the thing's rolling. No, don't do it. So they may be. They may feel, feel be perfectly happy. But my point is, we need to get along with the Russians. Their strategy. One last thing on this. This isn't a hidden thing. They have a strategy. It's called a hybrid strategy. And it's the use of cyber to weaken your potential enemies. I mean, they're not, they're not hiding what they're doing. So I, I think we had our emphasis. We got so concerned about whether it's going to help the Republicans or damage them or the Democrats. And we missed the beat, which I believe the people that were around in Congress in the in the Cold War would have been less, would have been more incensed by what happened.
0: Are, there, are you referring to the Gerasimov? Strategy, strategy, yes, the, you know, the hybrid. Now
1: team. he denies it, but I mean, people have, and journalists and it. it is their operating strategy, though. And whether you know, wh- whoever wants to take credit, it's like Kennan denied, not denied, he rescinded his, not rescinded, but he, he, he didn't think it was executed the, the uh, containment strategy. So, but what are they operating? It's the Grismoff. But for those that don't know, he's the uh, basically their commander in chief.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the Russian illegals program, how you know you mentioned that we were at one time uh, allies with the Soviet Union and but you know there was Conan Maladnie and you know the Ottawa ring and the, the Portland ring all these all these um Alger Hiss and that whole crew that took us a little bit by surprise that they were infiltrating us while we thought they were friends and um you know then you kind of bring up the illegals that are Kind of operating in plain sight, like Marina Marina Butina and this whole new new wave of illegals that are they're more overt than covert. I think you called them um, agents of uh, agents of access, <laughs> you know, which is a great great name for a new book. I don't know if, I don't know if somebody was thinking about that. Well, but, um, I can, I can I, be a source. I
1: can be a primary source for your book.
0: How would you? I mean, how would you imagine a um, a Russian illegal w- would identify themselves or operate today?
1: Right. So one of the great illegals, and that's, I think. Most of your audience, uh, we can think back about it. And then Tom Hanks did a movie a couple of years ago. I think he was nominated for a role, uh,
0: for an Academy Award. Bridge of Spies.
1: Bridge of Spies. And it involved Rudolph Abel, who was, and that wasn't his real name. His real name was Fisher. But Rudolph Abel lived in Brooklyn and he lived as a, you know, sort of an artist freelancing, you know, you you can be anybody in New York. I've lived there for 20 years now. I mean, you could, no one's going to bother you, right? And no one's going to press you about, but he had a low profile, invisible. His job, again, he came, you know, they gave him a false identity, two false identities, right? And what he had is an assistant working with him who drank too much, stole some money, (laughs) and walked into the French embassy, our embassy in France, and said, oh, by the way, there's a guy up in New York who's a spy. And what his job was, was to be invisible, not a flashy, you know, pinstripe suit and handkerchief in his pocket and bowler hat or whatever. It was just to be an artist with a scruffy shirt small apartment, you know, homemade coffee at Maxwell House or something. But he... He was, handling, he was handling the Rosenbergs and cases like that, people that were nuclear sources providing information about the nuclear weapon. And that's invaluable because the Russian embassy, just like the American embassy, you know, this is where movies get it up. you don't have free reign in Russia to run around and meet people and jump out of cars. I mean, they've got you covered. And today you don't even see them because of technology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can assume the same is true. If you're in a Russian embassy and you wonder – you're wandering around, you should count on having company. So how do you handle a deep penetration inside of your government? It's somebody that's not affiliated with an official installation. So the question is, you know, at one point they were going to put nuclear weapons in, uh, in refrigerator size packages and bury them around the United States for when they'll fly. I mean, people have to realize they really thought they were going to war with us, right? So that who does that? The legal student. Now, it's not an army. And so it's a small selective thing, and you would think it goes away. But in 2010, maybe I'm off. They arrested 10 people in Jersey, right? right. <laughs> Anna Chapman was one of them. got like, you a know, very attractive woman. Putin ended up dating her, you know, he traded her. But their job was to be invisible in suburban America. So you see that dowdy guy next door, you know, yeah, he could be, <laughs> but there's few out of them. There's few out of them because the Russians nor we have that many precious. Agents that require that handling. So, and every one of these unofficial officers is at high risk because when they're arrested, there's no diplomatic immunity. You stay in jail for until somebody negotiates, like uh, the Bridge of Spies. So, what I'm saying is, even as late as 2010, you had a, a network in, in, the, in New Jersey that were handling agents and, and uh, providing infrastructure. I'd love to show the Americans. Now, we're not bumping off vice presidents. We're not doing all the things that they have in there. But the basics are quite accurate. The they come with false identities. They live real lives. And they carry out secret missions. But what they don't carry out are the action missions. It's really meeting people and collecting information and meeting them under the most secure means. Mm -hmm. And Abel, the Americans thought that was his name, Rudolph Abel. And it turned out that 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 wasn't even his name. But when he was when he told the, the Russian counterparts when they were gonna you know, prosecute him, he they used the name Rudolf Abel, and that meant I'm staying the court, I'm not opening my mouth. So that was a signal back to the home office.
0: Yeah. Uh, or you also mentioned this whole new um classification of illegals with um this GRU created persona, Gusefer II, who was in contact with Roger Stone. Now we have like bot spies to to deal with.
1: But I think this is, you know, how's how has espionage changed? It's not in the hearts and minds of men and women. I mean, it's still treachery, betrayal, uh meeting people, how do you meet them? Do, the revolution is in in technology. Right. The type of information that I can in a half hour pull up here. I mean there's nothing that I could have done back in when I first went to Chile. The good I, I couldn't even imagine how I would possibly match it. So the ability to collect Tons of information becomes well, how do you process it all? And how do you get the repeating of the opinions and all this? Well, the same thing goes on an operational thing. I'd have to spend days trying to find somebody, and who is this? And how do you get assessment? Today you go in and online, people are telling you everything you need to know about them. You know, this is what I have for breakfast. I had one client, very wealthy billionaire, as a matter of fact. And uh, so he wanted us to look at his profile civilian vulnerabilities. So they said, Well, Here's a video of your wife and now it's on facebook and she's now going to the bank in luxembourg and she's talking about this is where she gets her money <laughs> and i'm saying look it might not be a good idea because there might be some people out there that want to meet her on the street and talk to her about her handbag you know yeah. well they don't even have to do that they're really sudden i mean we're going back in time you know why do you rob banks that's where the money is well today robbery taking place through the internet right right they're using bitcoins. So ability to find people, you can recruit people, right? That's what you do online, right? I'm not going to go into any of the more savory ones, but, you know, people are connecting and, you know, how do you connect? How come it gets to the problem? Counterintelligence is how you defend yourself, right? Mm-hmm. How do you defend yourself against all this technology? It's a real fight. So there are much more capabilities in the intelligence community. that I think I used the first drone. I could be wrong. And the counter-narcotics program. But it was a surveillance platform. And then someone said, well, let's put a couple Hellfire missiles, and then it went to war, right? <laughs> right, uh, right, So, you know, the ability, and when I was fighting with, you know, with Mujahideen, the, they had, we didn't give them satellite pictures because it's too sensitive. Now you can go on Google, Google map and get, get a picture. We used to do replicas, like hand-drawn maps. All I'm saying is when you talk about this, and the ability to be a good spy, you better be really good. Because we used to be able to, oh, here, just tell them. Here's a passport, and tell them you're a salesman. And <laughs> Today, you know, the people that work for me can quickly establish that it's fraud. I mean, your teenage children, <laughs> and so it's harder. So it's a harder, harder to get yourself out there, and yet yeah, there's so many more tools. So it's a different, it's a different approach. And the old
0: timers, the me. You know, it'd be like dropping them off in Mars and saying, okay, here, here, here are all these tools. Go. You know, Go ahead yeah. Well, it's interesting, like technology. I was pulling up an old book. I was giving some books away. There's something I had saved, which was something I'd printed out from, I think, like the early 2000s. It was an early, like Nigerian Prince scam. You know, I mean, no. it was it was written where, you know, I am so oh, yeah, and so. Yeah. I have so much money and you have to pay for my lawyers. And if you could please. And you know why you kept getting them? Because why?
1: people respond to them. You say, no, right. I can't respond. Right? And I'm just telling you, people do respond. And that's why. That's why they go on the
0: way they do. But it's interesting how technology, like all these technological advances, they seem to be big generalization, but they seem to be trying to simulate that one uh, trustful human interaction. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like all this OSINT and and all this stuff comes back to human in a way, you know?
1: If you look at how technology is successful in attacks, it starts with a human being. Identifying a human being who's weak, not weak. Is it, um, it makes a mistake, right. and then you enter you enter into the world and sees everything. So humans are used and have been historic as the kickoff point. But, you know, you, you, that's so there is. But the concern I have, as I stated earlier, a lot of practitioners, and again, I'm not going pick, to pick up on everybody. But I must have Wheaties. But <laughs> it's, the fence contracting world, I mean, we just if you look at Northern Virginia. I mean, that was farmland, you know. When the agency was built it there, just all the farmland. And now you have big cities, and then you look at it, and it's infrastructure and in support of technology and and basically in war fighting and intelligence. When I looked at the long arc of history, you know, you had big breakthroughs in, in technology. One was the satellite, right? But the beauty of the satellite was a great spying button. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had the Glomar submarine that went down and could take a ship off the bottom of the floor or find a cable or whatever. So technology broke through and the Afghan war ran, the uh, Stinger missile changed history. I mean, it's uh, you, it's like the guy that invented the bow arrow or gunpowder, that Stinger missile really changed the course of that, that war. So technology is, is tremendously impactful. And, but today Every day, you know, it's hard to make a buck now in the technology area because as soon as you make it, someone's got something with another device on it, right? So it's getting totally original. But what I'm saying is the whole industry is built around this. So if you say, wait a minute, now we're going to go and we're now talking about the Chinese and you're going to have to now develop all types of new technology or whatever, there's a a desire, and it's not a conspiracy. People are just going to try and find, find ways to turn all of that Uh, war industry and applying it to some other intelligence and military program. And I come back to the old, so we better have a strategy on how we're going to invest the next trillion dollars of war fighting.
0: I want to go over something else. You mentioned something in your book that I thought was kind of funny. It was uh I guess they're code phrases. I guess there's code phrases like the monkey is dancing on the pier or these simple phrases uh-huh. that you, you would exchange I, to kind of give bona fides uh-huh. and, um <laughs> Could you tell that I, story a little bit, how they started to get out of control?
1: Well, in, in Chile, I actually talked to the guy. Sadly, his wife just passed away from him. So at the mm-hmm. memorial service, pulled him aside and he said, you remember I sent in that cable that got Washington you know, really excited and I almost lost my job. And I said, yeah. oh, I do remember that one. <laughs> He said, well, what happened is he was the writer of the report and there was a case officer across town and he had a source and he said to the source, if we're going to go have a coup here, I want you to call me and tell me my uncle's sick. Right? (laughs) So the the country was tense. He calls my uncle sick. He calls the report and he sent it when they call a flash. That goes to every Every part right into the White House, there's going to be a code. It's MN. Next morning, you wake up, right? You know, the, the buses are running, everything's good. And the problem is these little codes, right? And the guy forgot, he thought he, he used the Uncle sick when he should have said, I think the uncle's, again. I'm getting sniffles. So, so <laughs> the, I was in the embassy the night of the kill, and I must have had, I don't know what he said, I made four calls. The baby's going to be born. <laughs> you know, right. like, If anyone's in the other line, big surprise. And what I said to training people, is, sometimes when I was in the agency, I'd go to a with their training group and i come in and talk about, you know, things that experiences that have gone wrong and what to be on the lookout for. And I said, whenever you do, do not use any of those codes. Just say, there's going to be a coup de marche, be at 9 o'clock. Don't screw <laughs> around with in the baby's room, or what kind of when, where what at? You know, yeah. But I mean, it's like, do not send it to uh, the White House, right? Don't send a message to the White House that the babies speak. Yeah. Now, my wife got the report, as I said earlier. They couldn't find me. I was in an Italian restaurant.
0: Oh, so the message went to the White House that the uncle is sick, and they had. Oh yeah, well no, no, they sent
1: no, no. They cleaned it up. A coup was imminent. In other words, right. they didn't tell you the uncle's sick. They. A coup's evident because that was the translation of the code. That's even worse.
0: Yeah.
1: But in the real cable that came in, the one that really set it off was we didn't know the military was planning until three days before. And I was in downtown Santiago, the Carla restaurant, having a Italian pasta dish, thinking of what I was going to do next in my operations. And my agent couldn't find me because we didn't have sophisticated camera. We went to the house, knocked on the door and said, Pat. There's gonna be a coup, it's gonna start in Valparaiso. it's gonna go off at seven o'clock, it'll be announced on radio tour, the navy will start it, and this is and I'm going away, I'm going to the airport and I'm getting out of this country. So he called the guy in the office. He said, you gotta find Jack, you gotta find him. So he found me, went back. That cable went out. You can find it. It's in the it's in the public record, and it's it says that. It doesn't say your uncle's gonna die. It says there's gonna be a coup, and this is what's gonna happen. And that was a, that's a true story of the of the coup message. Mark, there was one thing you said at the beginning that, I, if you don't mind, I want to set the record straight. Oh, when we did Afghanistan, we worked with the Mujahideen. We had no contact. CIA did not have, and you can't find any contact with al-Qaeda. Right. Now, bin Laden was there, and he got money from the Saudis. But they were involved in us And so I once talked to the chief who was out there, and I said, you know, what about this guy? What did you know? And he said, Well, we had about two reports that he was around the edges of something, but he was not a big player, certainly didn't receive ours, and he was a foreigner. And the CIA efforts were Afghan, totally Afghan. Right. So I, I want to delink that because of the tremendous implications of that. the CIA did not train bin Laden's crowd. The second thing I want to point out is that we left. Country fell apart a few years later. The Taliban did not exist, didn't come into power. And in 2004, when they did come to power, and 9-11 came, the CIA went with a covert action operation, was in there within a week, and the special ops military were there right behind us. They would have been on the same plane, except the Pentagon signed the paper fast enough. But they were there one horse length behind. And they brought the Taliban down. People forgot
0: Literally one out, horse behind, was, yeah,
1: was destroyed. And what were they destroyed with? The group that we fought with, the Northern Alliance. So there's a lot of history that gets jumbled up in here. And I, I want to make sure there's distance here on this. And on my last point on this, I knew we were in serious trouble in Afghanistan when the Northern, the Taliban, in the last few weeks, the North or the North, they took the Northern regions, which they hadn't done before. And that meant right that foothold. You know, for whatever set of reasons. The Taliban learned a lesson. They read their history. And so, uh, so I just want to make sure because you know, I was I was in a building two blocks away from 9-11 when it collapsed, so it's a, I walked up the FDR with all those people. And it's such a experience. I want to make sure there's a distance that that was a Al-Qaeda-Saudi-run operation. Not Saudi government.
0: Jack, this has been really this has really been wonderful. I'm glad for your, to have your time. It's great to meet you, and um, I'd love to speak to you again sometime.
1: Thank you. It was great.
0: Keep up the good work. I mean, you're adding a good level of understanding to the complicated world. Thanks, Jack. That was my talk with Jack Devine. His book, Spymaster's Prism, is a great read that covers almost as much as Jack's storied career at CIA. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider a contribution to our Patreon with access to show transcripts or a one-time donation to our PayPal account. Links are in the show notes. I'd like to thank our new Patreon, Leslie Rosniak, and everyone else for helping make this show possible. Keep listening.